I want to start out today by telling you a funny little story about four people. And these four people have names. Their names are everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. All right? There was an important job that had to be done. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. And everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. It's kind of a silly little um, uh, apocryphal story, uh, but it describes really well what happens in places where people are not assigned a job to do. Uh, I found this in an article about uh, medical offices. And they were talking about apparently a pretty common problem in medical practices where there's a task that they really think is important. And in order to make sure it's done, they ascribe that task to everybody in the office. And they talked about um, the main one that places have trouble with is answering the phone. It is so important that we do good customer service and that we answer our patients when they call. It is everybody's job to answer the phone. Uh, who can guess whose job it becomes if it's everybody's job? Nobody's. Nobody's job, right? And this article I read uh, really outlaid um, just the problems that we all know. Like we've been in those situations at work or at school where there's supposed to be shared responsibility, which means shared non-responsibility pretty quickly. And it laid out the things that happen, and we all, we all get this. You have a problem with expertise, right? Whoever answers the phone doesn't know how to fix the problem. So at these medical offices, you would have the person in billing who'd pick up the phone, because everybody's supposed to answer the phone, and someone would go, I, would, I need to know if I can mix these medications. And the billing person would go, I don't know. And so they'd have to put them on hold and go chase down the person that could answer that question. Um, there was what they call process inefficiency. This is where the patients would have to re-explain their problem every time they've called. Uh, this is, I've had problems getting health insurance in the past. I, you know, I, you guys probably know I work with our state health insurance system, and I'm supportive of it, but there have been times it has not worked great for me. And where it gets really annoying is I call someone at the call center, we have a half-hour conversation, and they go, we're going to be right on it, call us back on Friday if nothing changes. So Friday, I have to call them back because nothing's changed. And I get a new call center person, and they go, well, what's going on? And then I have to go through the entire half-hour conversation again with a new person. And that happens a lot if it's everybody's job to answer the phone. Uh, it also caused problems with prioritization. Somebody here is working on trying to put together a, a, a plan for how to help a patient, and the phone rings, and they go, well, that's my job, but it's also my job to help this patient. Which is the more important thing for me to do? Which is impossible to answer because you don't know who's on the phone, right? It could be that the phone's more important. It could be the phone is just you know, a prank call. You have no idea which is more important. And then the, um, it causes resentments, right? We all know what happens when everybody's job is to answer the phone. 20% of the people in the office take that super seriously. And they go, it is my job to answer the phone. And another 50% go, yeah, somebody else will take care of it. And after about two weeks of that, the 20% 
are ticked off at the 50% because it goes all of our jobs and you're not doing it. And they're like, no, oh, it's everybody's job. So if you do it, what's the difference? And they start to get mad at each other. In the end, it just destroys morale. They found in almost every workplace they studied where there was a everybody's job job. The people who did it were mad that they did it. The people who didn't do it, not the people who did do it, were full of themselves for making such a big deal about doing it. And in the end, the boss was still yelling at all of them. And if you're the one guy who's answering the phone and you're getting yelled at at every staff meeting about not answering it, what do you say? Well, fine, if I'm going to get yelled at anyways, I just won't do it at all. And it really shows us how important it is as people that we know who's doing what. And even more specifically, it shows us that we really do need leadership. We need people who will say, I will spearhead that thing. Answering the phone is my job. I'll take care of it. I'll get good at it. I'll do it. And when we all start to do that and we all pull our own weight, it really helps things a lot more. I think it's very natural for us to crave leadership. It's natural for us to like to have a sense that somebody is an expert on that. Uh, some of us don't like taking those roles because it freaks us out, but some of us like it. Maybe one way or the other, maybe you've worked in a group project as a, as a kid or in school or maybe even at work now. Um, often the group project it turns into a weird social experiment, right? Where like nobody wants to take leadership, but we kind of know somebody's got to do it. And if you're the guy who's always the leader, like I was in school, you're like, oh, someone else, please gonna do this. Someone else gonna put nobody's doing all this is terrible. And eventually, you just take over. You're like, I'm gonna do it. And then you're worried that people are mad at you. But frankly, most of the people in the group are just relieved that they don't have to do it, right? And it's just a mess. It's not good. It doesn't help us when we struggle through the difficult times of lack of leadership. And it's particularly bad at church. Churches are the worst about this. If you've been in churches for a long time, you will know that churches can committee something to death. Because what happened is we read in the book of Genesis that all people are created equal, so we want to treat everybody equally. And then we read in the New Testament that there's a priesthood of all believers, and that means that we're all equally capable of everything. So every decision should take two years where 10 people sit in a room and stare at each other and go, I don't know what you want to do. I don't know what you want to do. It's like trying to pick a dinner spot with your spouse, right? I don't care. Well, let's go to Chili's. I don't want to go to Chili's, right? Like this is how churches make decisions far too often. It's just handing back and forth the responsibility. We really do need leadership. And we know it from the Bible. There is hardly a story that I can think of in all of Scripture where it says, and then all the people got together, they all equally pulled their weight, and no one took leadership. It just doesn't work that way. The New Testament is full of the apostles, and people like Timothy and Titus, and uh, you know, Jesus and his 12. And we go into the Old Testament, we have you know, kings, and we have prophets, and we have Moses, and we have Joshua, and we have the, the patriarchs, and the matriarchs. We have all these people, very rarely, if ever in Scripture, does anything get done without the Scriptures telling us about the person who led the people to help them get that job done. Because as human beings, we just need the leadership. Because when it's anybody's job, it's nobody's job. We're going to look at that theme specifically within Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, if you were with us here last week, you uh, saw us start this series that we're doing. And we said part of the reason we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah 
is these are two books that together are about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We did a quick scan through Israel's history. I will do an even quicker one now. Moses saves the people from Egypt. Red Sea, taking over the land. Kings, prophets. God takes them into exile. And then they come back from exile. And Jerusalem is trashed. And the end of the Hebrew Bible that we have is about these people, Ezra and Nehemiah and some others, who have to rebuild Jerusalem. And we talked last week about the Bible says that when they did it, the people who remembered the old Jerusalem were just really crying and upset that the old Jerusalem was gone. And the ones who had never experienced it were really excited that they got to rebuild Jerusalem. And there was this feeling of both mourning and excitement. That, well, what used to be is no longer, but we're going to create something new, and we miss the old thing, but the old thing wasn't working so well, so we got to go to the new thing. And we said that for us as a church, this is kind of a space that we're in. You are literally in a different spot than you were two months ago. And there's probably some of us that still, to a degree, are sad about the thing that used to be, right? The old building was so cozy. Last night, we were picking up supplies, and I turned the lights on. It's like, oh, the wood wall, and it feels so warm in here. But also, our children were bouncing off the walls, and people were screaming in the hallways, and it was just, there was all kinds of reasons we had to leave. But it's natural to go, okay, well, what do we do here? How do we rebuild this thing here? How do we get in the mindset of being builders and not just users or occupants, right? And so Ezra Nehemiah is going to help us work through what it means to build again. And one of the things you need when you build again is leaders. This is Ezra chapter 7. This is when Ezra finally shows up. You read about six chapters of Ezra, and you go, why is this called Ezra? And then finally we get to who Ezra is. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahatub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mirioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for. The hand of the Lord, of the, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, Gatekeepers and temple servants also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Uh, King Artaxerxes is also King Ahasuerus. If your Bible says Ahasuerus, most of you don't care, but just thought I'd let you know. Um, so this is Ezra. Uh, when I Google Ezra, there are not nearly as many images on Google as there are on Moses, okay? And this kind of looks like Moses. Why has he got the law? And it's because Ezra is a man that we're defined here as a man of the law. First of all, we get all of his genealogy, taking him all the back, way back to Aaron. If you're going through 1 Timothy with us in our small groups, do you remember the first week Paul says, don't get caught up in endless genealogies and myths? You can see where some of that endless genealogy thing started, right? Here it's Ezra. We go, we want to prove Ezra's a good guy. Let me tell you about his grandpa and his great-grandma's great-grandpa and great-grandpa. And we just keep reading it. And he goes, that Ezra. And we're like, well, thank you for clearing it up, right? And so we have this Ezra guy, he's got this lineage, but more importantly, we know that Ezra is a man of scripture, that Ezra studies the law of God and he practices the law of God. And this is the essential 
qualification that Ezra has to lead the people. This is what brings Ezra to his place of reputation as they rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It's really hard. Again, I'm making generalizations. I'm sure I'm missing one. It's really hard to find a Bible, a leader in the Bible, who is not really well-versed in the law of God or in Scripture. Like, that is the foundational thing we're looking for. And even when Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for knowing the law but not living out the law, it's not like Jesus doesn't know the law himself, right? Jesus never criticized the Pharisees for knowing Scripture. He criticized them for knowing it and not using it. And certainly there are people who know Scripture but have never applied it to their own hearts, and they're poor leaders. But very, very rarely is there a good, godly leader in Scripture that knows nothing about God's Word. It's just the core thing. If we believe that we're people that are led by God, and we believe that God reveals himself through Scripture, then of course Scripture is the most important piece. This is what you really need in a leader. And you'll find throughout the Bible, there's leaders that are more or less charismatic. There's some who are physically dominating, some who are intelligent, good with their words. There's all kinds of different leaders. But leaders that are unaware of the will of God are non-existent. The only place you get it is like maybe the book of Judges, and those guys are terrible at their jobs, right? It's kind of the point of those stories, is that when you get a leader who doesn't know the Bible, or doesn't know God's word, you get chaos. And so this is the foundation of a good leader to help you rebuild, is somebody who knows God's word well. Uh, The story continues. This is a copy of the letter the king Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law. A man learned in manners concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. See, there's this repetition of that value. Artaxerxes, the king of kings. Uh, Interesting, right? When Jesus is not the only person to take this title in scripture, we see the arrogance of these kings. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including the priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and the gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the prince of Babylon, as well as the freewill offering of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever you seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Israel all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. You and your fellow... I get goofed up here. Oh, just give me one second. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of the trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, the God of heaven, may ask of you up to a hundred talents of silver and a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall upon the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. 
All right, so that's a lot of administrative stuff. Why are we reading all of this? Um, first of all, if you weren't here last week, this shows us again the uh, tactic of the Persians was always to repatriate people to their original lands. They found that if you gave people their own country and made them feel like they were in control, as long as they paid their taxes, who cares? Right? The Babylonians wanted to dominate people. The Persians said, no, let them do what they want. Just, you know, make sure that they're giving you 10%. And so this is kind of the standard of the practice here. The reason I read all that, though, all the stuff about all the people that get sent and all the money and, you know, the tax advantage that priests and gatekeepers got within, you know, the Persian IRS, all of this crazy stuff is because I think Artaxerxes understands something really important. If you want to have a good leader, you really have to support them. Have you ever had a time where you were given a job to do or a leadership role to take and then were not given any of the resources you needed to actually do that? I'm sure you've had this maybe at your job where it's like, listen, your job is to do thing A. And you're like, okay, that means I need tools B, C, and D. And they go, well, we've only got one of those, so make do. And it's just really hard. It's hard to do something um, when you don't have your proper resources. Uh, this is probably an old expression. I picked it up from um, Seth's cousin, Zach, actually. Uh, when you're doing a job, there are three things, there are three ways that you can do a job. You can do a job fast, you can do a job cheap, and you can do a job well. But you can only do two of those three, right? So if you want, I can do it fast and I can do it well, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. Or I can do it fast and I'll do it cheap, but it's going to be garbage. Or I can do it well and I can do it cheap, but it's going to take me forever. Those are kind of the ways things work. Because, you know, you have to be properly resourced to do the job you want to do. And so Artaxerxes here says, it doesn't make sense for me to send out Ezra to lead the people to rebuild the city and he doesn't have any people to get the job done. He doesn't have any money. He's constantly dealing with too many taxes. So we're just going to make sure that we clear the way. We're going to give him all the support he needs. Because asking someone to lead you and then not supporting them while they're doing it just doesn't make any sense. It's a really important thing that when people are given a job to do, you give them the resources to do the job. We've always tried to say here at the church, if you're teaching a kid's class and you need supplies for the kid's class, we will buy you the supplies for the kid's class. If there's a ministry that you're involved in and you need something, please tell us. Like, we don't have a money tree, but we're not going to ask you to do a job and then not give you the resources that you need to do it. Because good leaders deserve support. They deserve for the people that they're serving to pick them up on their shoulders and help them to do what they're doing. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Uh, this takes the support of leaders a little bit further. We will not be banishing or... Uh, recently, Ruth learned the word banish, so she's... But going around the house, you're banished, you're banished. That was not, you know, it's not what we mean by good supportive leaders. But what we do see here is this proliferation of leadership. Ezra's job is to appoint a bunch of other people to help him in the task of leading. 
And there are a lot of stories like this in Scripture. This happens with Moses, where he talks to his father-in-law. He goes, I just, it's a hard job. I don't know what to do. And his father-in-law says, well, appoint some other people to help you. Leaders are always supposed to bring up other leaders with them. Um, despots just, you know, treat people as disposable and just use them for their own desires. But good leaders always try to have someone behind them to replace them. I think there is not many worse um, indications of someone's leadership ability than when they quit a job, there is nobody trained to take over for them. That shows you that they've just dropped the ball. We should always have leaders who are creating other leaders. This is multiplying effect. This is what Jesus did with disciples, right? Jesus had 12 disciples, and he taught them all to be leaders except for Judas, and then they replaced him. And then there was, you know, those 12 guys then turned into 72 that Jesus sent out. And those 72, there's kind of that multiplication cascading factor. And that's what good leadership in the Bible does, is it creates more leaders. Last bit of Ezra for today. Praise be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me, as we're speaking now, before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Ezra goes out having this sense of confidence that the hand of the Lord is on him. And how would he not have confidence, right? He's read the word of God. He knows the scripture well. He knows God's will well. So he knows he's doing the right stuff. He's got support behind him. He's got money. He's got people. He's got, you know, tax status. I don't know. He's got all this stuff to kind of help him do his stuff. And then he's got people who are starting to come up under him and are starting to learn leadership. And he goes, yeah, this is good. This is how this thing is supposed to work. And there's a clear vision and direction. And Ezra is going to kickstart this rebuilding a Jerusalem project in a fascinating, powerful way because he's been asked to do a job. All right. I have to be honest that sometimes at the feast, we can be a little guilty of the anybody-nobody thing. Right? Um, because we're a church plant, and when we first started, particularly those of you who were here with us on day one, right, everybody had to do everything because if not, we were going to die. And so we put a lot of structures in place that were kind of ad hoc because we were a young church plant and had to put stuff in place. And sometimes we lack a clarity about what we want people to do. Uh, last year when Blackstone Valley joined us, Bruce and Janet came in, and that honestly was not the easiest thing for me to negotiate in that Bruce has always been a mentor to me, right? He's always been someone I looked up to. And now suddenly, as far as like, church staff goes he's kind of working under me at least in a traditional way that we would talk about those things and we started to have talks like well what's my role here and I was like Bruce I can't tell you what to do like it feels so inappropriate for me to be like this is your job and so we've tried to like work out what Bruce is doing but um, I don't know it's just been muddled at times right it's just not been perfectly well defined and so Bruce and I sat down at the beginning of this year and said what would it look like for you to be given a role given a clear role given support for that role so everybody knows what you're doing all right and I really did try to let Bruce drive that of his desires and his abilities because it still feels really weird for me the idea that I would tell Bruce what to do right and so we've talked about this, and we're going to share this with you guys today under this idea of rebuilding requires good leadership.
Uh, the title I think we've come up with is that Bruce is going to be a minister of discipleship. Discipleship is going to be the key word to what Bruce does. Discipleship in the scriptures are this idea of a little bit we just talked about, of training other people, of equipping other people, of helping other people to grow and to mature in their faith. A discipleship minister, their first question is, how is what we're doing at this church creating more mature disciples, making more mature followers of Jesus, making people look more like Jesus, and then equipping them to do the work that God's called us to? And so Bruce is going to pretty intensely focus on that. Uh, within those things, um, there's going to be a very special focus for him on prayer. Uh, we want to start some new prayer initiatives. We hope this year to have, I think, four different times where we'll have prayer meetings and midweeks. We'll try to least place those in to our small group uh, and feast group schedule. And Bruce is going to spearhead that. Um, Bruce is also going to be kind of in charge of the retreats. Uh, we do want to do a men's retreat this spring sometime. We'd like to do a ladies one as well. Carol and Bruce will work with you on that just to support you however you need. But Bruce is going to make sure that those retreats are happening and provide a good context for us to grow. And um, uh, also we'll be starting to talk about how we can better make our feast groups and our service activities times where good discipleship happens. And Bruce is just going to have an eye on those things at all times. Uh, it doesn't change. Bruce will still be preaching uh, on a monthly basis. He's still going to lead the Cumberland group. This isn't really that different than what he's doing. We just want to give you a word for it. Right? So when somebody goes, well, what does Bruce do versus what Caleb does? Right now it's like, uh, Caleb does a little bit more of it than Bruce does. Like, you know, like, but what we're trying to do here is define well that Bruce is going to take care of looking at discipleship and helping us all grow in the faith. Uh, with a particular emphasis on prayer. So Bruce, come on up here. I'm going to pray for you. Um, to kind of bring this sermon full circle, um, Bruce, with the sermon today, here's what I would say. Uh, like Ezra, you are just more than capable of leading people because you dedicated yourself to the Word of God. And we know you know Scripture and that you apply it in your life the best you can. And so that puts you in the kind of position that Ezra was in to be a good leader of God's people. Furthermore, we want to give you all the resources and the support you need to do your job well. Um, all right, I might start meddling at this point. Some of that means that when Bruce tries to start new stuff for us, when Bruce says, hey, we're going to do this prayer meeting, man, if you can make it, make it, do it. If Bruce says, hey, we're going to do these retreats, man, if you can do it, do it. And if you can't do it, still do it, right? Because <laughs> there is nothing more depressing as a leader, than to try a new initiative. And people are like, oh, I'm like, I'm cutting my nails that night, right? Like, I know that's not what anybody means, but it's, it's how we feel sometimes, okay? And so I will speak for him vicariously through me. I don't know what's going on here. But, you know, we've got, we've got to support. And when we try new things, even if you're not sure if it's a good idea, trust your leader enough to, to support him in the stuff he does. Um, also, we just pray that the work multiplies. We, we believe that your focus can help us all to develop into better leaders. And I see in our church already people taking on new tasks and new roles. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and we pray that when it's all done, you just feel that God's favorable hand is behind you. God, I thank you so much for Bruce. Um, his uh, humility and his willingness to lead and to do the right thing um, is just really... 
is, is mind-boggling to me. He is willing to do what needs to get done. Um, and he doesn't really focus on the titles and all that stuff. This morning is really about just letting us all have a clear vision of what he's doing so that we know what his jobs are. They're not everybody's jobs, but Bruce's jobs. And so we pray that he will help us to support him as he tries to help us grow in this action. Thank you so much for Jesus. It's his name. All right, um, we're going to have a little moment of reflection now. Uh, we're going to have, um, Brendan's going to bring up the music a little bit. Take some time to just think about these things. If you have any questions or prayers, now is a good time to put those down on the prayer cards. After two or three minutes of that, I'll take up the cards and do Q&A, and then we'll uh, finish on our screens. All right, um, so the question here. Continuing to personally struggle with both the time for evangelism, sharing and spreading, uh, the faith experience at the feast, looking for ongoing leadership in this area. So how do we get better about finding time and space to share uh, with other people? Yeah, right. So how do we continue to keep like the sharing of faith kind of foremost and in front of us and, and all those kind of things? Uh, it's a good question. One of, I mean, so this is not all the answer. Uh, I mean, there is a programming piece, right? Having good times or spaces that are intended for those things. So like, it's a lot easier to, um, it's a lot easier to invite people, like when we have an alpha course going, it gives you like a target to aim towards, right? Where we have something else like that. And so that's one piece of the things uh, that we will be working on. Um, some of this is, we always wanna kind of be working towards being authentically us everywhere we go. Most of us in our jobs or our social lives outside of church have a little bit of a habit to tone down the religious part when we're other places, right? We're afraid that we're going to come off too strong or we're going to make someone uncomfortable. And so um, it's a really weird thing. I'm not picking on anybody in particular. It's a weird thing that American Christians can on Sunday morning say, my faith is the most important part of what defines me as a person, and then say nothing about it for six more days. Right? Like, that's just a weird thing. It's kind of the world beat it out of us. And so learning how to be appropriately connected in those things. To where when somebody talks about something at work, or they talk something in a social setting, we can kind of seamlessly slip into something about, well, you know, what I found is that my church family helps me with that. Or I found that having this you know, prayer life is really big there, whatever, and not feeling weird about it. Because the more that we do that, the more it gives us opportunities to share and opportunities to invite. Um, and some of it is just putting aside time and place to make sure you're around people who aren't Christians. Right? And I know it's hard because we already try to carve out time to be around people who are Christians. Carving out even more time to people who are not Christians just seems like a lot of work. Um, but there's just always a balance in those things for us. And we always want to try to provide more space for that. Um, beyond that, I would say, you know... Help tell me if I'm speaking on turn, Bruce. But within this context in your discipleship minister work, if somebody wants more help with that, coming to you and trying to find ways to do that, I think is something that Bruce would be great to help with. Uh, could you define discipleship? So discipleship is essentially just the practice of becoming more like Jesus. Um, a disciple is someone who tries to emulate and model their life off of somebody else. And so our discipleship is how we try in everyday life to continue to talk like Jesus would talk, to prioritize the things Jesus would prioritize, to have the kind of prayer life that Jesus would have. 
And so discipleship is about molding us more into the image of Jesus. Another way we can put discipleship is maturing within the Christian faith. If you're becoming a good disciple, you're maturing in your faith. Um, all right, I'm trying to read this well. What will you do with the new oh, title? Uh, this change. What's that? Oh, what I do, Caleb do? Oh, yeah, yeah okay, that's a good question. Sure. Um, I don't think it's going to change a lot of what I do. So there's certain things that for me are still real standard. My preaching schedule and preparing for preaching. I'm still writing the small group curriculum. It's involved in small, small groups. That will be similar. Um, a lot of community connection stuff and being involved with the neighborhood association, with the school, and all that stuff. Those things remain there. Um, what it will probably do for me, though, is like when the retreats come around, it's going to change that I probably won't put as much time and effort into retreats as I probably have in the past. Um, it'll also, um, these prayer things, as we in introduce those prayer events, and particularly if they're part of our peace group schedule, there may be a week where Bruce is running a prayer event where we won't have feast groups. So that's something less, you know, I don't have to prepare groups and teach groups at that time. Um, but also, it's kind of, what it'll really do for me is that when I see somebody who needs someone to come alongside them and help them with one of these discipleship tasks, I probably will look at Bruce and say, hey, I noticed this, can you talk to them? And kind of hand that off to Bruce in a place where, particularly before Blackstone was here, that would be like my, you know, that thing that I would take care of and I'd immediately jump on it. Uh, I'd probably hand off some of those things. Does that make sense? 